Hi, I'm Sarah Wheeler. And I'm Miranda Rake, and this is Mother Culture, where we take on culture through the lens of motherhood and motherhood through the lens of culture. Hi, you sound oh you sound better than last time. Um, thank you. My cough drop just fell out of my mouth. So Gross. <laughs> and my daughter's not here to pick it up. Darn. Wow. Double growth. <laughs> I like when you're like, how do we all get the same sickness? Like, how does this right. just spread through our house? You're like, oh, you're literally sucking my medicine. After yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, um, uh, over at Romper in my day job, I'm working on a piece about um, supplements and um, it's a heavy hitter. So everyone get ready. And um but then here I am, like guzzling any supplement that they sell at Whole Foods. Um, and they because, sell a lot. And they sell a lot. I'm really gravitating towards the like, you know, is the label really weird? And it looks like some lady made it herself. And it definitely has like B products I've never heard of before. You know, that's what you want, right? Oh, yeah. That's yes. like the good witch stuff. It's not like an Amazon, you know whatever nothing pill right it's got it's got a weird texture kind of like grosses me out I don't want to know like what part of the bee made this product <laughs> but I can guess based on it's the texture the butt. It's, yes. the butt. it's the butt just so you know all the good stuff uh, we're comes back out to of the, the bee butts yeah. yeah I mean if it doesn't taste like rocks it's not working I think that's the kind of how the world of supplements works right yeah i think i can feel it sort of burning around my sternum when i drink it and um that feels like the good stuff yeah yeah i have um i haven't talked much about it on the pod but i've been dealing with some super cool mysterious dizziness for like three months and the money i have spent on supplements oh my goodness and there's like ones that you take there's like the twig pills and then there's like the things that you mix in water and like drink at night. Um, it, mm. Yeah, it's uh, I was doing like seven a day. Like I had to like write myself a cheat sheet. Um, it's a lot for anybody, but especially an, an ADHD. I was like, I need like a, a personal assistant to help me remember to take these fucking supplements. Do you recommend, is there one that you're like, wow, I'm going to take this for the rest of my life. Not that we are in the business of prescribing stuff to people, but. No, I mean, I think if I had to take one like medicine, you know, to Desert Island with me, it would be those Tums that taste like candy. Mm. I think it's mostly because they taste like candy. But mm -hmm. no, I mean, you know, it. I get it that this is how the body works, but it's hard to just be like, sometimes it takes six to 12 months to. <laughs> You know, to see if these things really take effect. And I don't know. I look forward to reading your piece. Maybe it'll save me some money. Well, that's the that's the goal. You know, we'll see. It's not saving me any money. And I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah. But it made you a little money. A, well, a, humble, a humble literary sum. Yeah. Yeah. We'll <laughs> see. We'll see. Publishing is dead. But, you know, you take what you can get. Yeah. We're fighting the good fight. Speaking of fighting the good fight, how is your teacher strike going? Oh, yes. Um, I have something to share, which is um, 
really sort of obnoxious sounding because people have like had to quit jobs and uh, it's, you know, brutal out there. We're definitely going to have no school in the month of November. But um, but <clears throat> I was driving to the grocery store today and I looked over at a playground and um, like it has sort of like there's this tree area and there's like a play area. And normally in the middle of the day, there would be like, I don't know, an, an elderly woman walking the track or something, you know, Yeah, because kid, me. kids are in school. But it was just full of families. It was like, you know, parents with kids. And when I go to coffee shops, it's like there's kids everywhere. There's just kids in all these public spaces. And it's like what we were talking about in a previous episode for attentive listeners, like third spaces, like the whole city has had to become third third places like for families during the strike. Um, and you see grant, I mean, I saw grandparents, so many grandparents with, with kids in the middle of these weekdays. And I just, there's this part of me that's like, this is really lovely. And I feel like the city, you know, people who don't have children are maybe like, maybe more compassionate than normal towards parents. I thought you were going to say really getting annoyed. No, well, okay. (laughs) I'm, I'm projecting, I'm choosing to believe that we're more welcome than normal in these, in these sort of a traditionally adult spaces. I I mean, a park is like a child place, but um, I don't know. It feels like there's this a little bit of a like, oh, wow, this is rough for you all. Like, it's okay that your kid is like spilling croissant pieces all over the floor here. Yeah, it's Wednesday. true. We really like shut up all the kids in a town in mm. these buildings for eight hours a day, you know, during the school year, at least. That's yeah, interesting to like kind it, of like peel, peel back the curtain. Right. It like bums me out sometimes. I mean, school's great and I love it and my kid needs it. And boy, does he miss it. And like, I'll be thrilled to go back. But it, it, there is something nice about more of, you know, everybody being together and, and, and seeing kids and like maybe not minding it so much. Yeah. I just want some of those people to offer you some childcare, you know, like, hey, do you want to just go grab a coffee? I'll just I would say yes. I have very my screening procedures are very, very minimal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, same. If my kid's into it. All right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You go, hey, what what do you think? Do you get a good vibe? Is this a creepster? And if they're like, (laughs) no, you just yeah. Yeah. you Yep. 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 So well, that's my thought. I'm happy for you that you're finding joy in, in the madness. And I'm happy for us because we have a pretty phenomenal guest today um, who's going to make us a little bit smarter. I think one of our main goals for doing this podcast is just to, you know, just be a little bit less of dum-dums about certain things. We have a lot of years of school between us. Right, Miranda. But, you know, you can only cover so much in the classroom. Um, So here on the pod today, uh, we have Catherine Moose, who is a professor of feminist political economy at UMass Amherst. Um, And we invited Catherine on um, because she's rad, but also because in the past several years, there have been a slew of books related to motherhood. Many of them favorites of mine, like Angela Garbus's Essential Labor, Amanda Monte's Touched Out, which we talked about in a previous episode, that position modern American motherhood within the context of capitalism. 
often arguing that forces that oppress mothers stem from the way our economy is structured. So, you know, we've kind of seen these like old efforts like wages for housework, um, which I don't know a lot about. But again, I'm I'm going to move today from a dumb dumb to a smart smart. Um, and like scholars and activists like Bell Hooks and Sylvia Federici, they seem to be experiencing some kind of revival. And we wanted to understand more about all of this and what it means for the culture of motherhood. Um, so that's why we have Catherine here today. And she also notably, I, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, was the first person to help me dye my hair in like seventh grade. Do you remember that? Yeah. That sounds I, plausible. I have like a very distinct memory of being in your kitchen with my head like kind of resting back into a bowl of hot water and Kool-Aid. <laughs> Remember like the whole thing about dyeing your hair with Kool-Aid yeah. and your dad walking by and being like, eh, just another Friday night. Like, <laughs> I don't remember my parents being that cool about dyeing hair, but <laughs> but I'm sure they'll be glad to be remembered fondly. <laughs> Maybe it's just because it was me. Because it was your you hair. Know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were like, that girl is out of control and we have nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. I think also, Catherine, we had our first co-ed sleepover together. For sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Where not much sleeping happened, not because of like anything, <laughs> anything romantic or sexual, just because we were we like, you know, stayed up all night, like trying to catch popcorn in our mouths or something. Sarah, the memory I have that I was going to share about you is that I'm pretty uh -oh. sure the first time I ever drank coffee was <gasps> at a 7-Eleven or actually a store 24, which is maybe a Cambridge, Boston thing. Uh, and rip, I'm sure it was like 24. hazelnut flavored or something disgusting in the afternoon. And, you know, my life has never been the same since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this was like, I think that was during our stint as we were like um, counselors in training yes. at the Hebrew after school. Yes. <laughs> so we were like, you know, like the things that you do when you're like, you're literally still a kid, but you're yeah. like, I have now been separated, you know, from the the littles. And so to like mark our transition, we definitely would go to like the the store 24 across the street from the church where the Hebrew after school was and like get ourselves a coffee and like talk about the grind or whatever yeah. on our way to. That's exactly the memory. <laughs> and then we'd like, you know, help some kids make falafel or something. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, I could talk about this stuff all day. Um but uh, but I know we have an agenda here. And so let's just start with. Um, well, first, Catherine, wh whenever we have a guest on and, you know, this really, I think, links up with our topic for today. We were interested in kind of illuminating the networks of care that support us all. So could you tell us who is caring for your children right now? Sure. So my um, toddler is at preschool right now for another hour or so. And my baby is being cared for by my husband. So a mix of paid and unpaid care. And is the it, preschool? Yeah. yeah. To put it, sorry, you were going to put it professor the way an economist would think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and do you, do you, are there like, did you 
find like a, are there public or low cost preschools where you are? Is this a private preschool? This is a private preschool. It is a co-op, um, Ooh, which is dangerous. great. And it is our week to throw away the trash, which is a great job for us, the garbage collection, because it is doable um, for the bandwidth that we have. Um, but yeah, there are not a lot of public options in our area that we would be able to access, unfortunately. So this is kind of the next best thing. It's being the trash collectors. At a co-op, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, paying paying uh, the equivalent of in-state college yeah. tuition and picking up the trash a couple times a month. <laughs> it's a lose-lose. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and your little one is really little, right? You're still on maternity leave? Yes. So my little one is under five months, but I am on paid maternity leave from my university. Yeah. What's so, what's that sitch? That's a great sitch. I have the fall semester off and my partner who's also faculty at um, UMass Amherst has the spring semester off. So hey, it's a nice well, paid. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's so, sexy. Thanks to my union, really. I know you talked a lot about unions, but this isn't something that the state of Massachusetts just benevolently gave us, but something that was fought for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Cool. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for you. Yeah. It's wild. The, like the, the ranges, uh, mm-hmm. my husband's company got like bought by a new company and all of a sudden he went from like the state six kind of to eight weeks, partially paid for partners to four months off mm-hmm. paid for our second kid. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just wild. Like how, yeah. I mean, it's just like so unequal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So let's start with some basics for, for your, your students mm-hmm. here <laughs> for the class, <laughs> me and Miranda here. So what even is feminist economics? Is that, did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah. Feminist economics, it is a a field uh, in economics that looks at issues of gender and how they relate to economics. So um, this is something that, you know, has really developed over time and people have been uh, working on it and and theorizing how gender plays into the economy, how it how it uh, influences work, uh, paid and unpaid work. Um, and it really kind of came into its own professional space in terms of having a professional organization, the International Association for Feminist Economics and a journal, Feminist Economics, in the 90s. So it's old in the sense that people have been writing about this for, you know, 100 years, but it's newer in um, in that sense in terms of sort of having a professional identity. Um, but issues around things like the gender wage gap or... Um, you know, care labor or labor market segmentation, like why are women in some some sectors or some industries and not others? These are all things that um, relate to feminist economics. Cool. That okay. That that makes sense. And then is the, oh, so the, they're all yeah. Go ahead. So the other yeah the other thing that is like relevant to feminist economics and how it differs from. Um, what people would call gender economics is that feminist economics takes an explicitly feminist stand. So it takes a normative and ethical position with regards to these questions, whereas um, gender economics might be looking at issues of gender, like they might put gender as 
a dummy variable in the uh, regression analysis, but it doesn't necessarily come from the same political perspective. So that's another thing that's important about feminist economics is that it's really taking an explicit political point of view. And I would argue all economics has a political point of view, but it's often kind of covert. Um, so that's another sort of challenge to mainstream economics. That's interesting. So like inherent in in the field of feminist economics is this idea, not just that there are kind of differences in how our economy works for different genders, but that they you know, that it those differences are discriminatory towards women and need to be remediated. Yeah. 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 I would say so. Yeah. 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 And that those differences um, aren't natural, that those things are socially constructed and that they're not um just the outcome of like natural preferences or, or um, yeah, a lot of it's about sort of like denaturalizing the idea that, that women would be in certain jobs and not others or take on certain roles and not others. Can you give us an example of that historically? Like one of even maybe one of the lessons that you teach your students around that, like an example of, of, you know, women unnaturally being, in some workforces and not others and a feminist lens on it. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I find really interesting is that things that you might take for granted, um, like in the U S context, construction jobs are typically coded as like male jobs. Um, but in other places like India, for example, that's not the case. Like women, low, low wage women are doing these really hard, crappy jobs. It's just that in the U S these are like good, better jobs that are more protected. And so they have men in them. So it's not, there's nothing about being female that keeps you out of a construction job sort of globally. It's a, it's contextual to how good is the job? What are the protections? Who wants to get into the job? Is it the lowest wage job? Um, and then are women sort of pushed into it? Same for like manufacturing in the U S versus abroad, um, things like that. Or another thing that, that, we see is like when women go into um, an industry, typically those wages go down. So things like you see this happening in like tech or uh, medicine or something like that. When women enter these fields um, that are maybe were high paying, the wages actually go down, not because, you know, women don't like to make money, (laughs) but because now there's other forces that are, um, that are sort of, putting downward pressure on the wages, such as discrimination or other other factors. That's uh, that is like totally news to me. That's yeah. fascinating. So so not just for women, you know, we know there's a wage gap between men and women mm-hmm. in a lot of professions, but not just for women, but for everyone. Like when the tech sector, for example, gets got more women overall wages go down? You will see that. I mean, you'll see that over time. I mean, and then the reverse is also true, whereas like when say like men join nursing or something like that, wages go up and they'll go up for men more than they'll go up for women. So So what are like the mechanisms that cause that? Well, you know, um, there's different, there's different theories around like discrimination. There's different theories around um, the limits to women's, you know, ability to, to like work really long hours. Um, So yeah, there's all kinds of like different, different mechanism. I'm not actually, I don't actually, I'm not an expert on gender wage gap. So I might be um, like 
not doing as well as uh, not giving you as great of a story. Your experter, my... <laughs> yeah, the expertist on this <laughs> right. call, at but, least. Um, so you know, but yeah, but yeah. just to say that it isn't a, like a natural phenomenon that some jobs are like for men and some jobs are or for women or some women are good at this or men are good at that or that kind of thing. That's so interesting. You know, yeah. I, I, I started out as a teacher and I worked in schools for many years and like, that's such an interesting profession for gender dynamics mm-hmm. where, I mean, at least what I observed, and I think this is documented that, you know, obviously there's more men in teaching. Um, you know, they tend to be in, um, positions with like older students, you know, they're more Mm -hmm. likely to be like the fifth grade teacher at the elementary school or Mm -hmm. high school or middle. Um, And also that they move up to admin, you know, administration positions pretty quickly, which make more money. Um, It's like if you have a man in a classroom, you know, it's like this slippery fish. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I always just kind of watched that and thought about all the little forces at bay there. I mean, I'm thinking about them as cultural, but you're really positioning them as like, would you say something like that? Maybe the insidious factors that, you know, would encourage a man and and not a female teacher to become a principal are more than just culture. Are they sociological? Are there, are there kind of, there are economic forces at play? Yeah, I think they're political economic. And I think, I mean, I think that the economy encompasses culture and social practices, right? So the fact that like the Mm. male teacher might get more mentoring or might be pressured to, I mean, both feel internal pressure or from elsewhere to kind of climb the ladder. Women might have gotten a lot of messages to not do that. You know, I think those are, those are things where they're both cultural and political and economic. I mean, I think it's hard to really separate. I typically focus more on the political economic story because that's my training. But I, I think um, the cultural and the social part of it is paramount. Is that like widely understood in the field of economics? Like, it, I, I like the way that you say that, but I, I don't know if I, as just kind of like a lay person, feel like all of the economic ideas I consume seem to like really understand that culture and social forces are absolutely, you know, impacting economics. Yeah. I mean, I think in a more mainstream approach to economics, typically will sort of abstract from culture and be like, that's outside what we study. That's outside the model. Um, And then it leads people to naturalize things. It leads them to be like, well, this Uh is what people have done. Or there's this idea of economics of revealed preference. So you basically, you do what you want to do. So if women go into care work, it's because they love caring for children. And if men go into engineering, it's because they love science. And there's no discussion of like, well, how did their fifth grade math teacher make them feel about themselves and all of these things? But I think um, more critical economists and certainly feminist economists would take that into consideration. And that is another kind of difference in the field in approach. It sounds really hard. Like if I can jump in, like it sounds like um, I would imagine that like economics is a very like this is an, something I think of as like numbers and data and mm-hmm. and measuring in this quantitative way. But it sounds like you 
probably also have to be comfortable working in softer sciences and and digging into questions of causality and correlation and and really asking questions maybe like four or five times to like get underneath um or get get close to the ability to like make a statement kind of like you're you're making like oh you know actually women are pushed out you know like i think mm. to get it, it seems to me that to get to that place as a point of arrival that is very powerful like a powerful point i would imagine that's a huge amount of work with data and then also maybe like sort of social sciences i, I, I don't yeah i mean yeah. i would i would say that economics is a social science but so like just to start, but it is a quantitative one typically. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say it's about asking good questions and then trying to figure out like the right method to answer it. But I would say that for any social science, I guess. Yeah. 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 No, it's yeah. really interesting. As a yeah. person whose brain cannot, like I glaze, I struggle in like statistics, you mm-hmm. know, but I really value that information. I just... Mm-hmm. um I'm just thinking about like how you must have to be pretty agile to move sort of one foot in data and one foot in these more like theory. Yeah. 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 But isn't that just actually what everything is like the kind of thing that you're describing that, you know, there are some economists who are like that has nothing, you know, culture has nothing to do with me. I'm just a money person. Mm. Like, isn't that a lie? And, you know, and, and so I don't know. I just feel like I think about this in um, psychology all the time or parenting research that like, you know, there are so many other kind of fields and paradigms that you have to go into in order to make any conclusion that is like, you know, really meaty and robust. Mm -hmm. Right. Like if you're just uh, like nothing is separate, really, in a society. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think that's the goal of doing good social research. So I, I'm in. Yeah, Miranda, did you want to? Oh, I was just going to say, like, should we get into our. Yeah, get into the. Yeah, <laughs> I'm interested. Um, you know, Catherine and I have talked online, uh, offline about this a little bit. And mm-hmm. and so I wanted to get into it here, you know, on the air today. Um there was a recent review in the New Yorker of Minna Dubin's book, Mom Rage, by um, the critic Merve Emray. And I'm, I'm less interested in her critique of the book, um, but there was something compelling in it for me, which is that Emray calls out what she refers to as like pop feminist nonfiction. And she implies also that it, it's bad for the culture. So she's kind of taking issue with what she calls feminish writing that she believes waters down the original sources of, you know, feminist economics or, you know, some of the people I mentioned at the top mm-hmm. um, and uses like terms kind of flung around like capitalist patriarchy without really understanding them. And she calls these like paraphrases of paraphrases of paraphrases, right? That in these kind of in more and more writing about motherhood, we're getting kind of this watered down version of feminist economics or Marxist feminism, or I, you know, I actually, I don't really know all of these terms. Maybe you can help us with that too, Catherine. So uh, do you see that as Mm -hmm. happening 
And, you know, more importantly, do you think it's a bad thing, as she claims? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there's a couple pieces to it. So f- first, this idea that um, that Emery talks about that, like these ideas that were once really radical, like this idea of wages for housework in the 1970s, which kind of kicked off um this whole thing in economics that's called the domestic labor debates about like the role of domestic labor, unpaid work in capitalism and really sort of brought in a feminist critique to, to Marxist analysis, which is kind of where my, I'm sort of a descendant of that, that literature um, or, or those debates. Those were, you know, kind of unheard of in the popular discussion like five or 10 years ago. So on the one hand, I'm psyched that anybody that it's becoming common for moms or, you know, popular writers or journalists to talk about um, care work, unpaid domestic work as work like this to me is is huge. And I don't think I think COVID had a lot to do with it. I mean, I definitely saw almost immediately in like places like The New York Times or elsewhere, um, people writing about um parenting and care work as work. And that's sort of fundamental to feminist economics as a research program and feminist political economy as like a critique of capitalism and also a critique of like a more orthodox or androcentric version of capitalism. So on the one hand, I'm like for it. Um, The other thing that just before, you know, about throwing around terms like capitalist patriarchy, I'm also like really thrilled to read that in mom books. Um, I think where it gets problematic is where it, and I've noticed this in some of the books that I've been reading recently as a, as a newish mom, um, is that there is a kind of like lack of precision um, about these terms. And that's okay. Like I don't need every mom book to get into the debates that I am in all the time about like, I mean, is it one system, capitalist patriarchy, or is it two systems that overlap capitalism and, I mean, this is like, I spend a lot of time. Two? I'm just guessing. Is it two? I don't really know. I, I, you know, I try to argue for a unitary approach, (laughs) a unitary theory of oppression, but you know, that's, it's a, it's an ongoing debate, right? And like, you mean like, is capitalism one thing and patriarchy is another or that intersect or are they like one thing working Or are they really just, that's like a whole like we can write books about that people do. You can. I can. Yeah, maybe. I'm. Yeah. But so on some on, on the one hand, I'm like, I'm happy for, um, you know, Amanda Montel to just like skip over that debate and just talk about the struggles that she's seeing through the lens of capitalist patriarchy. Like, awesome. Where it's where it's tricky is like, I think because we've all come of age where liberal feminism. So feminism that is not really critical of capitalism, but is more about like women achieving equal status, white women typically achieving equal status with men. Mm, um, that's important. Since we, I mean, and it's none of our faults, but we are so inundated with liberal feminism and grew up with that and then kind of came of age in like the neoliberal feminism of like Sheryl Sandberg, Lean In, which is now morphed into like girl boss or whatever. It's really hard, I think, for people who maybe haven't like done all the deep reading to interpret somebody like Sylvia Frederici 
wages for housework through a lens that is not liberal feminism. I, that's that's my critique. I think it's it's just a really hard thing to do. You know, Sylvia Federici is a communist, right? So if you're reading her as through the lens of liberal feminism, you're gonna get a little bit off. And that's what I've seen, like in some of the popular writing, where it's like they're making this critique, but then ultimately it's like the critique of of capitalism or of patriarchy don't have a, doesn't have a ton of teeth to it because it's ultimately about like women, you know, achieving equality, which is, you know, a really worthy goal. I'm not against that, but, um, it's not about like taking, taking down the capitalist system and reordering our society. So I'm going to pause. I'm going to hit pause just to say, um, kind of backpedal. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized we talked a lot about feminist economics, but we didn't pause to define feminism and we're kind of getting mm-hmm. into the weeds. But so I want to take us back a little bit um, because like I hear what you're saying and I'm picking up what you're putting down, but I'm also thinking about um, <clears throat> like myself as an educated person, whatever, like mm-hmm. a daughter of a feminist, you know, first girl to go to college and her family like um how does my feminism differ from my mom's you know mm-hmm. what what is feminism and that's our show yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, this is a safe space and i yeah. too would like to know Catherine's definition of feminism yeah, right is it wearing a is it wearing a sweatshirt that says it is that it i mean I think it's I think it's a critical consciousness. I mean, that's a that's a, a about gender and about like not not accepting that um, patriarchy is a natural or just system, right? So it's it's critiquing this this order of of um, gender oppression or gender inequality, but that can manifest in a lot of different ways, right? Like different, you might think like it's about, um, achieving educational or economic equality with men. That's like a really good goal of feminism. Um, but it, but like keeping the stand, like the nuclear family intact or something, or you might think it's like, we need to get rid of all of these institutions and start over. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sort of yeah. not. Well, you're um, saying it's like yeah. an umbrella term that encompasses maybe like many different ideas. I would think we say, a, yeah, I would, like people I use it in different ways. Kind of yeah, we're getting yeah. into the weeds of what we're what we're kind of here to talk about, which is like, I think, right, like people mm-hmm. saying I'm a feminist in this like pop culture way yeah. without maybe understanding like. And then and then does that matter? Is that okay? Like, right, like you are a person who spends lots of time thinking about this in these really complex, brilliant, important ways. But then um, to use an economic term, like trickle down, you know, like does it trickle down to um, I need to like push my glasses up my nose for using (laughs) that term. Um, Like, you know, is um, does it matter? Right. Like if, if I can't mm. define my own feminism, but I kind of have this feeling about what it means. Um, and, and if that feeling that impacts my behavior or, you know, and I, and this is an over like simplification of this question, but just sort of the sake of sort of when you say liberal feminist, right. Mm. Um, I sort of think, well, that sounds good. You know what I mean? Like, but then as you're talking about it, I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound so good or, 
You know what I mean? So I'm I'm curious about that. Okay. So I think the reason, the reason it matters is because, um, like what kind of, what your understanding of feminism is will dictate your behavior, right? So, um, if the idea is like being a feminist is having more women in political office, maybe that means you're electing more women or you're going to have more women and like CEO positions or something, then that's like, maybe you're going to climb the corporate lab ladder. Um, but if it's a vision of like all women will get all women and, and people of all genders and children and men will, um, get to like have all of what they need to, for human flourishing, then it's really different, right? Because you're not going to have a vision of feminism that excludes, you know, black and brown women and, and like necessitates their exploitation so that you can like get that C-suite kind of thing. And that's, you know, that's where like, um, uh, different definitions of feminism, I think, are really paramount. So we saw, like, I would say in the early 2000s, like people talking a lot about intersectionality and intersectional feminism, and that became kind of like a buzzword, which is really important. It's really important that people bring in race and class and other kinds of social difference into feminism. Um, But that also was kind of interpreted, I would say, through the lens of liberal feminism, because it kind of became like a thing you put on a tote bag or like, which is fine. I mean, it's great to have merch. That's great. But um, (laughs) like, we all like that stuff, but, um, but it didn't necessarily, you know, if you have, uh, the like executive board of a company that's like dumping, you know, toxic waste into the river, but they happen to have like 50% women. I mean, have we achieved the goals of feminism? Or what, or whose goals of feminism, that kind of thing. So all of that makes sense to me, Catherine. It's super, super helpful, both kind of your defining of terms and kind of thinking too about the impact of different theories or paradigms Mm -hmm. kind of like showing up in, in the culture and like in real time for a society and, you know, a kind of a, a, I don't know if it's a counterpoint, but like something that comes up for me is like, well, then don't we want just to learn about all the different ways to fight the, fight the patriarchy, you know, mm-hmm. as much as we can kind of joke about how that phrase, you know, has gotten watered down and, you know, you have Taylor Swift going back and putting it in, you know, her uh, her re-record. But that's good. I mean, song. I'm not against that. Right. And that's everyone good, was like, right? everyone was like, they didn't have fight the patriarchy keychains in 2013 or whatever, you know, but yeah, mm. there, there was a whole debate about that. It was like, who cares? She wants there to be a fight the patriarchy keychain mm-hmm. in the song. And, and now it's there. We're just superimposing it back into, you know, the, the, the culture 10 years ago. But, um, but you know, aren't, aren't all the ways good, right? Like I, I there's, there's a term that's helpful to me a lot when I think about school integration work, which I'm you know, very passionate about, which is like, it's going to take multiple interventions. Right. Mm. So and and does it matter if those interventions are always, you know, not perfectly well informed? You know, like I'm thinking about something that I think has made a shift in a small way around, you know, the lives of women and, and 
the like harm of the patriarchy, which is kind of all of this conversation around like the Eve Rodsky of it all talking about emotional labor mm-hmm. and the work that, you know, mostly in hetero couples um, that women do that men don't do. And, you know, she has like the card game and the spreadsheet where you kind of are are really calling out what it is that you do versus your husband. It's, you know, she tries to make it more accessible to different kinds of couples, but um but that's what it is, you know, and personally for me, like I, there's some of that I roll my eyes at, but I also think it made a huge difference for me. Like I went through a shift with my husband in between our two, ch- you know, having our two children where we really changed the makeup of how we ran our family. And it, mm. it changed me from someone who felt really trapped and powerless and kind of oppressed in my family Um, to someone who felt like I had, you know, equal footing and, you know, and, and it was hard, but, you know, so that came from somewhere. And as I'm saying it, I'm like, where did that come from it? Right. Well, here's the thing. So that must come from somewhere up where you are, but is it okay that I don't really know how to connect that to some theory? So it's a perfect example because emotional labor um, is actually from feminist sociology. And it was uh, coined by Arlie Hochschild, who's like a very important sociologist who has also also coined the double shift. Second shift. Second shift. Yeah. So that and that that concept has changed a little bit in the popular. So with the original meaning was more like the emotional labor you do, like as a waitress, like being nice to some skis ball, you know, or like, you know, a, a, like a flight it's attendant so making people it, feel calm. Yeah. So it's like that kind of effective labor. <laughs> but I think like the emotional labor, the way you're using it, um, of like in a couple or like remembering to send a thank you card or like a birthday, you know, bring a birthday present to the party yeah. or whatever. This was um, fair play is the fair, book. Yeah. That's, the, that's yeah, a really yeah. important thing to have women talk about. So like, does it really matter that they're not using, that the word has shifted in the last like 20 or 30 years? I don't know. I mean, I, I it's, it's interesting to me that these things are happening. Um, that, I mean, that, I think it's a good example just because I happen to know where that word came from or that phrase came from, but where I think, it matters more to me, at least, um, getting back to like some of the political economy, other political economy questions is like, and, yeah. Can I just pause you for one second, Catherine, because mm-hmm. I'll lose my thought. But I just mm-hmm. have to say that I am aware that like speaking about fair play and like the impact that's had on, you know, women mm-hmm. kind of making their relationships more equal. I do think it's likely that that's, you know, only been helpful for a pretty privileged set of women, you know, like, and as you were talking about intersectionality and kind of liberal feminism, traditionally excluding women of color or, you know, I'm sure trans women, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a history of that. Right. I I'm just I'm just acknowledging that, like, I one of the critiques of my own claim that like what, you know, there's nothing wrong with that is that like, well, did that did, you know, did me reading fair play and making my marriage better? Did it liberate you know, my, you know, the species. I mean, it's, <laughs> or did it's, it you... just kind of make it even better for a select few, you know? Okay. Sarah, That's... how dare you not liberate the species? Yeah, I dare you. I We're mean... here to, to complain about you, actually, Sarah. Yeah, yeah. Like reading fair play and improving your life actually ruined 
my life. <laughs> this yeah. is why I have such trouble making decisions. You know, I'm like, <laughs> I, should I get these jeans? Is it liberating the species? No, oh my no. God. So, uh, yeah. No. Okay. Let, you, you, you talk, okay. dear guest. Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, well, just to, I think finding a way to like better negotiate care, work and emotional labor for with your partner um, is, you know, it's your small step in liberating the species, right? Because it has an effect on your family and your kids mm. and your community. So I would, I would, I think that's all for the, all for it's the not good. a waste in, of time. No way. Not yeah. at all. And it kind of leads into what I wanted to say about like the, the maybe misinterpretation of some of these concepts or the like loose interpretation where it makes me nervous is when the popular culture like uses these phrases and then it's not really clear like who the enemy is or like who who's causing our problems. So like I think like negotiating with our partners, especially if those partners are male or mask and are doing less of less than their fair share is like very important towards liberatory, you know, emancipatory politics. Um, but like we also need to be thinking about, you know, the ruling class or the capitalist class or like our bosses as causing a lot of these problems for us and not thinking about like other women or children as the cause of the problem. And I think that's one of the things that like uh, is important to me in thinking about like how do we clarify um, what these what these what the politics of these ideas really are between like, you know, a demand for wages for housework or thinking about care work as work is that we're looking for like an emancipatory politics and solidaristic politics for women, for children, for people of all genders. Right. So I think, I think that's, that's, what's important to me is like people to know that they should be like going for their bosses or who, who we're fighting against. Yeah. Like who that, we're fighting against be... yeah, or making demands mm -hmm. on the state for things like free childcare, for things like paid family mm -hmm. leave, for things like free yeah. universal health care. I mean, things that are for, you know, abortion, free abortion on demand. Like these yeah. are the, these are the demands that we should be making and not just like, oh, it's a lot of work to take care of my kids. And like, I mean, yeah, no, this That's is a caricature, but like the kids, the kids yeah. are, yeah, it's the capitalist patriarchy's fault that my kids are so annoying or whatever. Like that's like where it gets a little jumbled. And I don't think anyone's like really that sloppy, but. Um, well, can I jump in? Yeah. I'm going to jump in with a, with a concrete example here. So um, I don't know, like this is, I'm throwing someone whose work I, I really admire and love um, <laughs> under the bus. Um, I'm not throwing her under the bus. Um, so a, a person that I know and have read for a long time, Sarah Peterson, who's coming on the show soon, um, wrote a book called Momfluenced. Um, and I don't know if you've read it, but um, so we had a conversation about the book when it came out and I read it and I liked it. And I I personally have a real issue with social media. So I love anyone who also does. Um so and it was, a you know, a nuanced exploration of what is happening on social media between um, consumers of this content and creators um, and really interesting sort of pointing out these women who create content, who make money in this way. Um, this is really insidious and it's harmful for the the you know, let's just say women, mothers who follow it um, to see these 
unrealistic images created to sell stuff, um, you know, shrouded in a veil of authenticity. And um, I think that was a great critique and a really important critique. But when I talked to her about it and I read the book, I thought, where is the the real conversation about meta? And, um, you know, they are the real uh, earner here, right? The many, most creators don't make a lot of money doing what they do. They make earn money on commission. Um, you know, it's not a great gig. You're actually like selling your life, um, and your mental space. Talk about like mental load, um, in order to make a few dollars. And then meta is just raking it in because you, these, you've got a mom on one side and a mom on the other side. And in the middle, the, you know, is, is meta just, Yeah. You're talking about Cash. Meta, nay Facebook, meta, nay Facebook, yeah. yes, yeah. Facebook mm-hmm. and Instagram, and um, and you know, ditto for TikTok, right? And yeah, and it's even more insidious, I think, than just cash. Of course, we, we attention economy, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that to me, at, you know, sort of talking about feminist feminist economics, you could argue that maybe, and she's making great points, but she's maybe missing the like you're saying structural capitalistic mm-hmm. um layer cake <laughs> whatever you know pyramid i guess um or it's almost like these these demons have faces like yeah. they actually do have faces and it's not yes, the other mom right it's not yeah, the yeah. mom on the other side right, of the phone right it's and I think there's a Naomi Klein, Klein sort of element of this, too. Mm. Like you, we've talked about, like, who are we really mad at? Right. And I think yeah. mothers get into this all the time. Right. Where it's like mom versus mom. We we um, and I think this is a, a perfect example where who is yeah. the real enemy? And I think women, I I would love to hear what you think about this. I often think women really need to second guess, especially if you're finger pointing at another mother. Mm hmm. I love I love that example of the momfluence. I I had heard about the book and it sounds really good because I'm also extremely critical of social media and you know yeah putting their kids on it. So, but I think your your that critique really resonates with me that it's like yeah, where's um, I'm just going to call it Facebook, but like where's Facebook's responsibility in this? Like they've created this market, they've they've made they've made it possible. Um, you could also say like where's the US government in terms of like regulating? I mean, they should, they should be much better regulatory controls over these social media platforms. So these are the, these are the entities, the institutions that we should be fighting, not just like, you know, rolling our eyes at these other moms. And I think, I think that, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I was thinking about multi, um, multi-level marketing when you were talking about that because it's so easy Speaking to of like, supplements yeah supplements or <laughs> leggings oils. or oils, oils or whatever and it's so easy to be like oh these like fools doing this thing but it's like what what is going on in the economy that these these women need access to mm. a way to make money that isn't full-time work outside the home like I'm assuming yeah. that it's because they have their care responsibilities are so great but they but their partners are probably they, they still need to bring in some money, right? Because like um, what used to be called the family wage, the idea that like one person, then it would be the adult male, could earn enough to support the whole family is like totally gone from our economy. Like there's no people are not paid enough for that unless they're very, very high earners. Um, and you can say that's a good or a bad thing, but what it but women's also aren't aren't supported in 
doing care work or they don't have access to like paid um, or to, you know, subsidized care. So yeah, that's, that's why people are like selling these ugly leggings online or whatever, hey, or, or selling their are yeah. tasteful. Sorry. It's I don't so, know. I don't it's know. almost <laughs> like you're saying like, you know, keep looking up, right? It's yeah. like, if you've identified a problem, just, you know, keep, keep looking up and, and seeing kind of, can you pull up one more level, you know, but, and, you know, there's work to be done within your, you know, immediate systems, right? Like all of that, I think can exist at the same time. And when we talked about um, schools here and protest on a, on a previous episode, we talked about this, like the role of kind of individual, you know, action and the role of like, you know, systemic change and how it can be a both and Mm -hmm. um, that like it can matter. Like you said, you've you've validated me very much, Mm -hmm. old friend, that it it can matter that, you know, my marriage is more equal and we can also need something larger for, you know, a larger group. I'm wondering, I I know um, we have to wrap up, Catherine, and I'm wondering like, from your vantage point and with your experience, like what would be your wish for what Mm. mothers would understand about the lens in which you see the world? Mm. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, well, I would, I would want them to really realize that they have some like really important, um, an an important economic role, like raising children is, and this is something that's like missing from some of the popular literature. It's not just like, um, we're, we're, we're producing the the next generation of workers, right? Like this is essential for the economy that we have future workers. There are people, we love them, but they're like, it's from the capitalist point of view, they're future workers. And therefore like what we're doing is so important. And we, um, we should be able to demand a lot more for that, a lot more support, a lot more help. Um, and we also like, I would hope that mothers would think of, um, themselves as having like this revolutionary potential to, um, you know, teach our children to, you know, question oppressive systems, including capitalism and including patriarchy. So that would be my, my great wish. You know, this is the great, first of all. And then also I think about um, to circle back to Minna Dubin and and um, I haven't read her book, but I read her initial essay that sort of launched all of this. And it's when great. It, and I have to say, you know, a lot of the way that she made kind of these things digestible was was very helpful for me and mm-hmm. I think helpful for a lot of readers. So that that's kind of that was my counterpoint earlier. Go ahead, well, Miranda. Oh, so I think like when her first when her essay first came out, whenever that was 20, uh, 2019, eight, 19. Yeah. So yeah, my son, she, my son was like 18 months old and, um, you know, I posted on Instagram. So you have met um, about my kind of gut level response to it, which was um, that I didn't like it. I did. I, I think she's a smart and interesting person. And um, but I really felt like this is a person with like anger management problems, you know, um, and it was murky. I think the essay, you know, I'm sure the book is fabulous, but um, I thought, is this about anger or is this about parenting? And and and. I know it resonated with people, but um, I ended up in these conversations with a lot of other mothers my age who sort of felt the same and um, who felt that 
This was an essay not about rage or anger, which Minna herself ends the essay saying she went to anger management therapy, but uh, which is great. We should probably all need that. But um, but maybe this was about parenting under late stage capitalism and um, not about maybe your rage is not at your child. Maybe your rage is is maybe you need to look for a different place to direct that rage. Totally fine yeah. to have rage, but maybe it's going in the wrong direction. And I think um, that we can maybe we can plan another episode. But I would love yeah. to hear more about I don't want to raise workers for capitalism. Mm-hmm. But well, I have, you, do do? when you well, say that, I you're think, doing no, it, whether you right. like it or not. I mean, boo, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the thing, whether you like it or not. I mean, unless in unless you're independently wealthy and they're not going to have to work for a living, then. They're going. I'm to working workers. on that. Yeah. By the way, you can figure it's that out slowly but surely. Um, but but you're what do you also, feel you're about doing cave, more than that, cave right? Living. Yeah. Yeah. You're also you're also like raising people who might resist capitalism, right? Or who might overthrow capitalism, right? So it's it's that tension between like you're doing this really important thing that the economic system is completely dependent on because the whole economic system is running because of the work of workers. And you're making workers um, and you're therefore really important to the economy, whether or not it's acknowledged or remunerated or anything. Um, But at the same time, you know, there is this revolutionary potential to to raise people who who question these systems um, and who question patriarchy. I mean, I think you're you're that's that's a big job that we have that's not. That's not what our bosses want us to be doing, typically, unless you have, you know, a great anti-capitalist, anti, anti-sexist boss or something. <laughs> um, but just, I want to get back to the the point about um, Minna's book, which is that I I have a similar feeling, which is like we we do want to have a feminism that is in solidarity with children right so because that is part of being anti-patriarchal right patriarchal is having the the patriarch the like male head of household call all the shots and that also oppresses children and so i think as mothers we do you know we do need to direct our anger um at the systems that are that children really are not in control of, right? And our society, you've talked about on your podcast before, our society is really not set up for children and we want one that mm. is. Um, yeah. And that that would be to our benefit. So that's another thing that I think um, is is just a really important thing that that we can intervene on maybe in this discussion. Yeah. And I would, I mean, I think to that, to, to both of you having having read mom rage. And this was some of my confusion at, at the New Yorker piece, even though I, I really, you know, found some really interesting things in it that I I think the book is that it's that journey of like, how do I go from this thing that feels directed at my child where it's pitting me against my child, Mm -hmm. my, my anger. Um, and it's making my child, my enemy and pull up. And the book mm-hmm. is a pulling up of like, what, what the hell is going on and what's behind this? And this isn't just about even what's going on in my family dynamic um, or my marriage. It's about these larger systems. And so what she does is kind of take that very personal anecdote from the that's in the essay and go on this journey of like, what what is the system that kind mm-hmm. of led to me in my home 
freaking out because my kid won't brush his teeth, you know? And so I do think that that's such an interesting um, journey to follow someone on. And, and it's also, I think it, it's also an example of like the kind of the, the yes. And of Mm -hmm. like, okay, you can go to anger management and you can be like, wait a minute, I need to, you know, I need to get involved politically in, Mm -hmm. you know, making better childcare or, you know, um, working so that schools are more inclusive of neurodivergent kids and and preschoolers with, you know, atypical behaviors, which she talks about in the book is like a big stressor, you know? So um, I think it was a nice kind of call for that. Yeah. And, and I would argue that's what capitalism does. Like it, it pits, it pits workers against each other, whites against blacks. It pits men against women. It pits adults against children. And that's something Mm. that we should recognize that it's not just like a personal failing that you're having these conflicts, but that we need to not let them have it happen. Right. Or, or not, or, or we need to recognize these conflicts as, um, coming from a system that's, bigger than us. Yeah. Um, and then fight that system. Well, I, I will segue us into our closing segment um, by we like to talk at the end of the show just about what culture we're consuming with our children recently. And actually, speaking of capitalism, <laughs> I feel like when I was thinking about this question this week, I was like, we've been cons- consuming Christmas like oh. that's the culture. <laughs> and I was in Starbucks with my son yesterday I do like um one afternoon a week I pick one of my kids up early from like after school so you know it's like 3 30 or something we go and do whatever they want and he wanted to go to Starbucks and the Japanese dollar store get some origami and um and we got into Starbucks and he goes mama why is everyone pretending it's Christmas when it's not even Thanksgiving yet and then he just proceeded to walk throughout all, all of Starbucks and be like it's it's over there and like point to the festive holiday drink menu. And then he like pointed with astonishment at the gift card display, which were indeed all like Christmas themed, you know, and, he, and then he was like, Mama, it's even the music. <laughs> and then, you know, I felt the need to be like Christmas does have some nice things about it. Of course, we honor it. And it's really cozy for us when it brings us together with our family. And this is consumerism. They're trying to get you to buy more (laughs) shit. (laughs) So it's seasonal. And I think he kind of tuned out as he does with my, you know, but I felt like a good, you know, a good fighting the good fight. One conversation my kid doesn't listen to at a time. (laughs) Aren't we all? Yeah. What about you, Catherine? What are you what are you consuming with your little ones? So my my older daughter is almost three. And so we've been reading um, Blueberries for Sal a lot recently, which is like, I think, a perfect book. Classic. Uh, Classic. Perfect. And also oddly kind of about economics in that they're like gathering they're gathering blueberries for the for the winter this is like consumption smoothing it's like why you would save up you know it's like it's interesting I mean if you read it every night for a month you're gonna think a lot about it but um (laughs) it's social provisioning when your mom's an an economics professor I know you know I know he's like I've been thinking a do you see, honey? <laughs> Do you see? This is, it's, you know, it's like they're doing subsist, like unpaid 
work. This is work. That We're talking, is by the way, about a baby bear. <laughs> and a little and a no little there's a kid. mom there's little sal and, and her sal. mom yeah and then oh. there's a bear and the bear and then there's crows that one makes me nervous about. when the bear shows up i'm like this is yeah I'm, i get anxious in that book about a year I ago i think say. my daughter found it pretty scary but now she's like you now know? she knows that they get reunited the mom it's, the, it's yeah. the guy who wrote um make way for ducklings right mm-hmm. yes Did, yeah. have yeah. you all read time of McCloskey. wonder yeah, his Time of Wonder book. I gotta plug it. It's fabulous. It's long. I don't. You know heard it here first. We're plugging a pure children's book <laughs> yeah. by a long dead. White yeah, they're from the forties. Off the press. Blueberry for Sal is from like forty eight, which is what surprises yeah. me that it's still so good. Like it doesn't. That's that time of wonder will give you <laughs> chills. Just it's kind of yeah. long. So read it after your kids in bed. I bought it for my kid and he never wants to read it because it's too long. And I'm just like, fine, I'm going to sit with this. It's about like a hurricane on one of those little main islands. Ooh. And it's extremely atmospheric. So anyway, check it out. All right. I want to give Catherine the assignment of reading that book and then telling us what the lesson is <laughs> yeah. about, about the economy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there totally is one because it's related to like the summer people and the people who stay. See? OK, we're going to circle oh, back. We're going to yeah. circle back. You've, yeah. So book you, once you once you start seeing it, you see it everywhere. Right. Mother. Yes. Book oh, yeah. yeah. I think like uh, let's do like uh, children's books through the lens of economics. It'll be a little sister podcast. There's a fun article in, um, I think it's in Lux. Do you know that? It's like a newish socialist feminist magazine that does a critique of um, Streganona. Oh, <laughs> and it's like yeah, they, yeah they're like yes. not down with Stranona. Wow, and I, we, they we don't still, like her, or is well, it? I mean, Anthony's a schlub, obviously. Anthony, his a name's schlub. Big Anthony. Oh right, Big, sorry, get it right. <laughs> I'm not gonna bother. He doesn't deserve it it's because she, I think I'm trying to remember. I think it's because she like doesn't want the whole village to eat her magic pasta. So they're like I, not but it's into like her, spilling in her little <laughs> house and stuff like. No, it's it's yeah. out of control. Also, those villagers are dicks. Yeah, <laughs> that's they true. They, like, there's kind of some violent witchy stuff. magic. Yeah, and then true. talk shit about her. So you're here to defend Streganona. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to write four thousand <laughs> words defending Streganona. In defense of Streganona. I love it. Uh, what I about you, Miranda? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we're reading the Hardy Boys. Yeah. Uh, it's all right. It's, my kid's into it. I don't know. It's, I was a little nervous because, I don't know, this criminal dies and my son really didn't seem phased by it. I, I don't know. It's, I don't know. I We got to mix it up away from these really old, weird mystery books. He just likes them so much. I think they're so... Like cozy mysteries, like he loves them the way that my husband's grandma loves them. It's like I think it's just predictably soothing. You know, it's comforting. Like you know what's going to happen, and this person is bad, and this person is good, and they're going to solve it, and they're going to find clues. And I don't know. There's a great series. I know I've already recommended uh, Mac Barnett, the children's author, to you. But there's a great series that he does called The Brixton Brothers that's like about a kid in the current, well, I think current day-ish, who is obsessed with like a Hardy Brothers-like 
old series of books. So all of his like knowledge about solving crimes is like dress up like a sailor and go down to the docks, you know, but it's like what would actually happen if a 10 year old or like a 12 year old did that. Um, so and <laughs> this it's, is what you know, we need. it's it's so fun and it's without like all the delightful problematic surprises that are in a book from the 50s or whatever. So much, you know, OK, last thing. Really quick. The other piece of culture that we've been consuming is a master, like giant collection of every spy versus spy comic that ever existed, Um, which I felt really smart for, like realizing he might be into because like my kid can't read, um, but there's no words in spy versus spy. It's just pictures. And it's kind of like like the black guy and the white guy, like they're the same, but one is. Yeah. Yes, they were. As a kid, I read them in Mad Magazine because one of my best friends always got Mad Magazine (laughs) and um, we would like pour over it together. And um, one of the first things that we could understand was Spy vs. Spy. So um, this book seems to be out of print, but I found it at Powell's for like 15 bucks and uh, it's in strike times. It's been keeping him busy when it's time to take a tv break you heard it here out of print books (laughs) yeah you can go go to town because i have my copy so best of luck to everyone (laughs) (laughs) that sounds great well uh that's all for us today we're so grateful to you dr Catherine moose uh, for your time and dropping your knowledge and trying to unpack some of this with us i think we i think we took off some of the layers yeah my pleasure thanks for having me (laughs) yeah yeah for sure Uh, so we'll see you next time and like my mom always said I'm going to raise you as a good little worker under capitalism so that you can grow up strong and overthrow it Mother Culture is produced by Opus Knox Media with music by It's Electric follow us on Instagram at Mother Culture Show and find us wherever you listen to podcasts Don't forget to feed the all-knowing algorithm by liking, following, subscribing, rating, and reviewing. Thank you. And please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash motherculturepod, where you can follow us for free or become a paid member for just $5 a month, which honestly doesn't even get you a latte in major American cities these days. You'll support our production and receive some serious perks.